This morning, we're not going to be just looking at one text in particular. I have uh, many texts to share with you today, and I hope this message from God's Word will be a great joy and refreshment to you. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we marvel at what you have done, we are filled with, with joy, with gratitude, with amazement, with a sense of seeking still to see more, to know more, to experience more of your resurrection power at work in our lives. Father, we want, we want the fullness of Christ to deed, like Paul prayed, to know Him and the power of His resurrection. So we pray that You would strengthen us to that end through the Word this morning, that You would fill us with Your Spirit both to speak and to hear, that You would impress upon our hearts the glory of the resurrection, that we would receive its message with gratitude, with praise, and with honor for the Son in whose name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I have given the title of the message, The Message of the Resurrection. Eight implications to take to heart. As we begin to consider this together, I want you to just think in your mind for a moment, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? When you speak the gospel to someone, what do you tell them? Now, gospel means good news, right? And when we think of the gospel, we think of the works of Jesus Christ that the Father received for our salvation. His righteous life. His atoning death. His resurrection. His ascension into session where He reigns and intercedes for us. And His return. That's the good news. Five works of Christ that encapsulate the good news. And upon those works, we trust everything about our salvation rests in the work of Christ and His work alone. Now, when you think about each one of those five aspects of the gospel, you think of their impact, if you will, upon your salvation. What's the real impact of each aspect of the gospel upon your salvation? Maybe the one that you're most familiar with thinking through is the cross. When, when, when someone asks you what importance is the cross to your salvation, you can say, well, I understand that Christ was credited my sin. My guilt was imputed to Christ. And the Father's wrath was poured out upon Christ in full so that I don't have to bear it for eternity. Right? That's, that's one that comes to mind more easily, and we rejoice in that. But when you think about the resurrection, does it come to your mind quite as easily and clearly as to what impact the resurrection has on your salvation? That's what I want to look at today. What is the implication? What are the implications of the resurrection? And some of them have to do with the person of Christ, but many of them have to do with our salvation. I want you to, to rejoice in these texts today. And maybe in your outline, 
just write down some of the references that I'll give to you today underneath each one of those points. And then this week ahead, you can sit down and think about those texts and how they fill out the, the main heading of, under, under which each, each reference comes. And I have to give some credit for sure to Dr. Michael Barrett for these, some of these points because much of what I'm going to say is expanded upon uh, from a section here in pages 20, or 92 and 93 of Beginning at Moses. I had to share this with you today because it thrilled my heart. Number one, implication of the resurrection. The resurrection affirmed Christ's identity. The resurrection has this powerful implication that it proves to us and declares to us without question the identity of Christ. What other person has risen from the dead to which men and women today look for their salvation? Is there any other? Think of the world religions. Is there any other that has risen from the dead? The resurrection affirmed Christ's identity as the promised Messiah. We know this from Luke 24, 44 through 46. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written in the Old Testament that the Messiah... The Christ, that's the same word, two different languages. The anointed one, the one chosen by God for our salvation to, to deliver us from the curse of sin. The Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So when we see a man who says, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and after being crucified, he rises from the dead, you know that that is the one promised by God. He is the Messiah. But then it makes you sort of think as you read this text, where does the Old Testament prophesy that the Messiah would rise again and thereby be confirmed as the Messiah? Where does the Old Testament say that? Do you know of Old Testament texts that prophesy of the resurrection? Well, here's one. Psalm 16, 9-11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David wrote that psalm. But isn't David talking only about himself? How could David be prophesying about the Messiah? Well, that's just part of the, the nature of prophetic Scripture that God, breathing into a prophet like David, could enable him not only to write of himself, but also of the coming Messiah. Because we have Peter, who says in Acts 2, 24-32, referring to Psalm 16, God raised him up, speaking of Christ, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is Psalm 16, right? And Peter says that David was writing about Christ. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, there's the Davidic covenant, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, do you see? The Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah's resurrection. Here's another one, maybe a bit subtle, but look at this. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And look at this next phrase. When his soul makes an offering for, sale, for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The most obvious phrase there that refers to resurrection is right here. Having made an offering for sin, God the Father would prolong the days of Christ would raise him from the dead so that every will of God for our salvation would be accomplished in the hand of Christ. Did you think of this as a prophecy of the Messiah? Jonah? Jonah is a prophecy of the Messiah's resurrection and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? Listen to Jonah's words, how death-like and grave-like they sound. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Say, how in the world is that a prophecy of the Messiah's resurrection? Well, Jesus said it was. See, when, when the religious leaders were asking Jesus, prove to us that you are the Messiah. Show us a sign. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, the promised Messiah, will be raised. It affirmed Christ's identity. He's also the true prophet. The identity of Christ as the true prophet is affirmed by the resurrection. Christ predicted his own resurrection through the prophecy of Jonah. So that's kind of a double prophetic fulfillment there. Jesus said he would. Jonah foretold it through the words of Christ. Jesus also predicted his own resurrection through the analogy of the temple. Remember that prophecy? John 2, 18-22. Jesus said, in three days, or I will, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Well, most people around heard him and thought he was talking about the temple. 
But of course, it says there that he was talking about the temple of his body. The fact that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead proves the perfection of his prophetic power. He is the true Messiah. He's the true prophet. And beyond that, other than the resurrection, there are other prophecies, just as a side note here, that that Jesus made during his earthly ministry that have been fulfilled. Mary's story in, in Bethany. Remember, Jesus said, every place where the gospel goes will be told of this woman who washed my feet to prepare me for this burial. And that, that's true. The betrayal of Judas, Jesus told ahead of time. And that happened. The scattering of disciples. And that happened. Peter's denials. Again, Jesus suffering death and crucifixion, He prophesied Himself. The sending of the Spirit. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. What a fascinating prophecy this is. Jesus said to His disciples before He was crucified, right at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, He said, not one stone from this temple is going to be left on top of each other. Maybe He said that around 30-something A.D. And then, 70 A.D., what happened? Rome came in and crushed Jerusalem and the second temple. Christ prophesied so specifically, and was fulfilled. The true prophet and the Son of God. The resurrection affirmed Christ's identity as the Son of God. Romans 1, 1-4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was, here, here's this phrase, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The resurrection affirmed Christ's identity. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Here's the argument. The one whom God has chosen to judge the world in righteousness is the one that He has appointed and He's given assurance to to which one that is by the one who He raised from the dead. And we know that's the Son of God because He says the similar thing in John 5. 19-29, through where, for example, verse 22, the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. And verse 27, He has given Him authority over Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. The Son of God, the Son of Man is the one into whose hands God has entrusted all judgment. And you know that it's that one because that's the one whom He raised from the dead. Acts 17.31 So when I think of this first implication, the resurrection affirmed Christ's identity, how do we respond to that message? How do we respond to this part of the message of the resurrection? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you receive Christ for all that He declared Himself to be? Do you doubt any of the claims that Christ made about Himself? Eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, 
incarnate, the Messiah, the Christ, Lord of all. He claimed all these things. Are they true? Yes, it is true. How do you know? Because he's risen from the dead. And so that is the point of this particular text that we see here on the screen. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The second implication that I want to share with you this morning is the resurrection accredited Christ's atonement. It put God's stamp of approval on it. This is, this is a perfect atonement. This is an effectual atonement. This is a received atonement, God would say. This is satisfying to me. This is complete. There's nothing else needed for human salvation. The resurrection says that. The resurrection accredited Christ's atonement. Well, the first thing we need to see here is about this accreditation is that God raised Jesus. That's, that's the first simple but easy to overlook, but it's, but it's a powerful point. God the Father is the one who raised Jesus. John 10, 17-18 For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. In this text, Jesus says he takes his life back up, but even behind his taking up of his life is the authority, the charge of the Father. I want you to do this, son. Yes, there are texts that also say the Spirit of God, like Romans 1, say that the Spirit of God raised up Christ. But certainly... The Trinity was completely involved in the resurrection. But notice how many references, and there are more than what I have written here for us or typed here for us, but God raised him up. God puts his name, his signature on the resurrection. And that accredits Christ's atonement. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 3.15, whom God raised from the dead. 5.30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 13.34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Raised from the dead. Look at Romans 6.4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Think about that phrase. Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. There's something more to that than just saying it was God's power that raised Christ up. There's it mixed into that statement, God's approval, God's affirmation, God's love, God's, God's, God's glory surrounding the resurrection of Christ. The Father approved all of Christ's work by His resurrection. 
1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, again, God is putting His approval on the resurrection of Christ. He was foreknown, Christ was foreknown or chosen before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. In other words, think of it this way. Some songs go like this, but God didn't search through heaven to find a Savior. Right? He's like, I wonder if we're going to find one who will do this. No, Christ was chosen from before the foundation of the world. This was planned. This was established. This was set. This was glorious. But in recent times, the times of the apostles, He was made manifest. He became man and He, he lived a perfect life and He died and it all became clear. Who through Him, through the Father's work, through the, through the Son's life and death and so on, His manifestation, are believers in God. God the Father who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's something glorious about this text where God in His complete approval, in His joy, in His affirmation, His satisfaction, raised up Christ and, and glorified Him. Revealed to the world that this is the Savior of the world. And so you can trust God. You can trust God's affirmation of Christ. I love this point. How shall we respond to the message of the resurrection? Here's what we need to do with that. Place your faith and hope in God who fully accredited Christ's saving work. And I could say it this way. Let the one from whose wrath we are being saved tell you what completely satisfies Him for the salvation of our souls. It's the Father who said, this satisfies me. The resurrection proves that. This death is perfect. Let God's accreditation ransom you from the futile, futile ways of family religion. That's all part of 1 Peter 1 2. We are, you know, as, as a human race, we grow up in families, yes, that are religious, and sometimes. A family religion can be enslaving because it teaches us to continue on in our own good works and our own traditions and our own efforts. And you know what? We need to trust in Christ alone and trust that God the Father is completely satisfied with the work of Christ. The resurrection says that. Believe God for it. Let God's accreditation purify your conscience from dead works. You don't have to work for your salvation. God is satisfied with Christ. Trust Him. Hebrews 9.14 says it. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There are people all across the world that hear the message of the Gospel and they say, it, it can't be enough. I've got to do something. Their conscience bothers them. And they say, I've got to add to Christ. There must be something more that I need to do. And we just have to believe the accreditation of the Father who says, this is enough. Christ is enough. I proved it by raising my son. A third implication of the resurrection. The resurrection acclaimed Christ's authority. It declared, it shouted the authority of Christ. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When did he say that? Just after he was raised from the dead. 
or Acts 2, 32-36. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We need to see the resurrection as that First step, if you will, in the ascension of Christ to the place of Lord over all. Does that make sense? That's the resurrection of Christ. It is declaring the absolute authority of Jesus over all. Look at it in this text, Ephesians 1, 15-23. This is the Paul's prayer for the church. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him. Raised and seated at His right hand. And that raising to be seated placed Christ where? In the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Christ has all authority. Here is the application of that authority. He gives gifts to the church. He gave gifts to men. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And from that place of authority, He gave gifts to His people. Christ's gifts. Gifts of grace. He's the mediatorial ruler. Notice what it says here in in verse 18. And He is the head of the body. The church. Colossians 1.18 The head of the body. The church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. And what effect does that have? That in everything, He might be number one. Preeminent. Christ is Lord of all. Because He was risen from the dead, the resurrection acclaimed Christ's absolute authority. But also, His authority extends not only to His rule, but but as a representative in our behalf before God. What shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31-34. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and being raised is seated at the right hand of God 
And there He is interceding for us. Because of the resurrection of Christ, He has authority to stand eternally before the Father, mediating for you, representing you with His perfect righteousness, representing you with His complete atonement. That is authority with God. Here we see this again. The continuing priesthood. He holds His priesthood. Christ holds His priesthood for how long? Permanently. Why? How is it possible for a man to hold His priesthood, the man Christ Jesus, how is it possible to hold His priesthood permanently? Because He continues forever. He rose from the dead and He will never die again. And consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. The resurrection of Christ grants to Christ absolute authority, complete capacity and power and privilege and right to intercede for us who are in Him by faith. How shall we respond to the message of the resurrection? How do we respond to this? Submit to His authority in everything. Yes? Everything. To seek His will in everything. To trust His power in every situation. There's no situation that God in Christ cannot enable you to do for Him. Rest secure in His protection. What authority is greater than His? Rest in His protection. His power. Rely upon His provision. He's the King who provides all things for His people and give Him glory for everything. The fourth implication. The resurrection achieved our salvation. Romans 4, 24 and 25. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised... For our justification, our being declared righteous before God was dependent upon the resurrection. Again, because if the Lord wasn't raised, His atonement and His righteous life were worthless. But His righteous life and His atonement in our place were powerful and effectual, and we know that because He was raised, and therefore we are justified. Romans 5.10 for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. His ongoing life of ministry and, and mediation and intercession, we will be saved in the last day when Christ returns. He will then be our righteousness and our life. The resurrection achieved our salvation. Think of this verse, Romans 8, 1 through 11. I'll just read 1 and 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it speaks of our salvation, the work being done by Christ, and that work being applied to us through the Spirit. And verse 11 if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
the raised Christ is effectual to save. His Spirit will live in you. It lives in you as a believer and accomplishes the work of salvation. Again, back to this text. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God interceding for us. Because of His resurrection, we can hear these things from the words of God. Who can be against us? Christ was given for us. Nothing, no charges against God's elect. We are justified. No one is to condemn. Because of the resurrection of Christ. Think of this text in a negative sense, or actually it's said in a negative sense, but you can think of it in a positive sense once you come to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, then preaching is in vain and what? Your faith is in vain. Your trust, your trust in Christ for salvation is empty, pointless if Christ hasn't been raised. Look at verse 17. Again, your, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You're still under condemnation. You are still under the punishment of sin. You are still under the power of sin. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have said, I'm a believer in Christ and have died already, there's no hope for them. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then verse 20 flips this entire paragraph upside down. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, our faith is not in vain. We are no longer in our sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are with Him. That's the power of the resurrection. It achieved our salvation. Ephesians 2, 1-7. Notice the, the, the closing verses of this section. Verse 4. After stating our fallen condition, we read of God's grace toward us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. Spiritually, we are now alive. We're no longer dead in our sin. We no longer follow the course of this world. We no longer follow the impulses of Satan. We no longer have a spirit that works in us that is the same as the sons of disobedience. We don't, we don't have that same nature. It was dead. It's dead with Christ. Now we are alive with a new nature. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. That's not who we are anymore. Yes, we still struggle with sin. Yes, we fall prey to temptation still. But if any man be in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Why? Because we have been made alive together with Christ and raised up with Him and seated us in, with Him in heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His mind, of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved 
The resurrection achieves our salvation. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 as well. He has caused us, the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Born again. New creatures in Christ. Birthed into the family of God. Alive in the Spirit. A new capacity to please God and to honor Christ. A living hope. And how did that happen? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that promises to us an inheritance that is coming, which is a completed salvation. Right? That final salvation in the future. That final salvation of our souls when when we will see Jesus and be forever changed, completely changed. That was accomplished by the resurrection as well. 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Again, how shall we respond to this message? The resurrection achieved our salvation. Trust then wholly in the saving work of Jesus Christ. A fifth implication for you to consider this week. The resurrection assures our immortality. You will live forever. John 14.9, Yet a little while, Jesus says to His disciples, and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. Look at this. Because I live, you will live. If you're in Christ, His experience will become yours. You're in Him. Because I live, you will live. 1 Corinthians 6.14, The God and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then in His coming those who belong to Christ. There's the all that This phrase is talking about all who belong to Christ. Christ is the first fruits. He's the first harvest. His resurrection is a foretaste of our resurrection. So there's a good title that you can think of with Christ. He's the first fruits. And you are the harvest. His experience will become yours because you are in Him. It assures your immortality. Since Christ is alive and will live forever, you will be brought to life. You are alive spiritually. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ and your body will also have a resurrection in which you will enjoy immortality. 2 Corinthians 4, 13-18 Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. What precious words these are. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
the things that are unseen are eternal. The resurrection of Christ secures that you will be raised with a new immortal body in which you can enjoy the presence of God forever. I mean this by absolutely no insult, but with an entire heart of honor. I pray this text for many of you elderly people, that you would rest and be comforted in the resurrection of Christ. Because yes, you feel this. Your outer self is wasting away. You can't do nearly the things you used to do, and that grieves you. And that's part of, part of what we groan in this body, like Romans 8 says. But I, I pray that your inner self will be renewed day by day as you set your heart and your eyes on the things that are unseen. Not what you see in the mirror, but what you see in the heavenly places. Christ's resurrection secures that for you. It assures your immortality. <sighs> 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. That's a promise. God will bring those who have died and us when He returns to be with Jesus because Jesus died and rose again. How shall we respond to the message of the resurrection? This message of assurance of our immortality sets your hope fully on the grace coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And don't lose heart. Keep your eyes on what is unseen and coming soon. It's secured for you in the resurrection. A sixth implication. The resurrection animates our Christian living and serving. Look at this. Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. What a glorious verse this is. Wonderful sentence. In the body of Christ, on the cross, all who are in Him by faith died to the demands of the law. We no longer have to keep the law in order to be saved, in order to have eternal life, in order to please God. Christ accomplished that for us. But yet, is the law then meaningless for us? No, we seek to obey Christ and to serve the Lord our Father out of a heart of love. And so through Christ's resurrection, we are enabled from the heart to do that. We are brought to life spiritually. And being united to Christ we can bear fruit for God. Christ alive in us, us raised in the Spirit, can, can serve God with a new heart of love and devotion. God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is what Galatians 2.20 speaks of. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. First, Christ is alive and He lives in us. When you think of the Christian life, do you think of it as your own efforts straining and you're all alone in this and you're just going on pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and seeking to, to just trudge through all the duties that the Bible tells you to? No, Christ lives in you. His resurrection 
assures you of the sending of the Spirit and His living in you. And that is how you can bear fruit for God. He lives in you. And trust Him to do so through you. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, and therefore He is the eternal shepherd of our souls. We will always need a shepherd. The Lord Jesus, being raised from the dead, He is that for us. He feeds us. He leads us. He guides us. He works in our hearts. He disciplines us. He carries us along the path of righteousness for His name's sake. And so that God, through Christ, equips you with everything good that you may do His will. In fact, He works in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Christ. God the Father works in you through Christ. The risen Christ sends His Spirit to live within you, and God the Father works in you what is pleasing to Him through the risen Christ within you. It's a magnificent thing. Who could have thought of such a glorious salvation? And so to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The resurrection animates our Christian living and service. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, preaching, anything done in faith is vain, but no, Christ is risen, and so our serving, our living, our preaching is not in vain. In fact, nothing that we do in the Lord is in vain. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. The risen Christ will, will work in us and through us and affect His will and advance His cause through us. The resurrection animates our living and serving. If you have been risen with Christ, raised with Christ, there's a wonderful phrase, raised with Christ, resurrected spiritually, seated with Christ, His righteousness ours, His atonement for us. If that's true for you, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Since Christ is raised and you are in Christ, you are raised with Him. You are seated in heavenly places with Him. Spiritually, but by God's decree, your salvation is secure and finished and done. Therefore, your hope needs to be set on all of those things that Christ has accomplished for you through His resurrection. You're dead to this world. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And yes, because that is secure, your place with the risen Christ is secure in God, then all of your salvation will be completed when He appears. You will appear with Him then in glory. How do we respond to the message of the resurrection? This message that says the resurrection animates our Christian living and serving? Well, labor towards fruitfulness of the risen Christ by the risen Christ within you. That's the only way we can be fruitful. Our works, our words, our efforts are not fruitful, but Christ within us is fruitful. Trust Him. 
and live with your heart on the place to which you have been raised, that place of your complete salvation in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Live with your mind and your heart and your affections and your desires there. Pull your desires away from the things of this earth. Christ is risen. A seventh implication, the resurrection anchors your hope in God's promises. The resurrection anchors our hope in God's promises. How does it do that? Well, didn't Jesus get a promise from God that God would raise him from the dead if he would give his life for the people? Hebrews 5, 9 through 7, or 7 through 9, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. What were some of Jesus' prayers and supplications? Something about his deliverance from death. Isn't that something? He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Did, did God prevent Jesus' crucifixion? How was it that Jesus was heard and saved from death? Through the resurrection. God delivered Christ through death and raised him. He was heard because of his reverence. And through that, through that process of Jesus' submission to death and then the promise of the Father to raise him being fulfilled, He becomes a source of salvation for us. He was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension is our salvation. But also what I can see from this is that if God the Father answered the prayers of Christ and, and fulfilled his promise to raise the son from the dead, will the Father keep his promises? He absolutely will. He did with Christ. He did with Christ. Christ has been raised. It says it here as well. Hebrews 6, 13-20, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the simple point I want you to see from this text. And there's certainly so much here, more than we could cover at this time. But this is, section is about God's promises, right? The writer of Hebrews wants you to know that God's promises are reliable. He made an oath. He made a promise. God made a promise. This promise is based on His character and the character of His purpose. 
Well, how do we know God will keep his promises to us as he did, as he did to Abraham? Because we have a forerunner. We have a forerunner. Jesus is not only the first fruits, he's the forerunner. He lived his perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead and he, and he ascended and he, he intercedes and lives in the very presence of God. And God promises that for us, that we would also someday exist with Christ as his brothers and sisters, as his congregation in the very presence of God. How do you know that's going to happen for you? How, do, how does Abraham know that that's going to finally happen when we will all be gathered there together in immortal bodies, delighting in the presence of God? Because Christ is already there. He's the foreigner. What's a foreigner but someone who goes before you? Right? He runs the race before you. And so all of God's promises to Christ have been complete. He's there. He is our anchor in heaven. And you who are in Him will also follow that same path by His doing, by His grace, by His promises, and find all of God's promises to be yes in Christ. Well, how do we respond to that message? This resurrection that anchors our hope in God's promises. Every promise made is a promise kept for both Christ and you who are in Christ. So be absolutely confident in the promises of God. None will be left unfulfilled. And one final implication this morning. The resurrection anticipates the judgment and glory of Christ. Look to this final piece of the glory of Christ being affirmed before our eyes. Let me read this text in entirety. We just looked at a few verses earlier. John 5, 19-29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to all to, to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of, Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, why does this text say that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son? So that all would honor the Son as they honor the Father. Bow before Him as Lord and Master and King of the universe. And what guarantees for us 
that Christ will have that place of judgment to be honored by all. Well, we already read it. The resurrection. He, the Father, has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this appointment, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This Lord Jesus Christ, He he deserves to sit in that place of judgment, doesn't He? He's the one who lived and died and rose and He is coming back in glory. And that resurrection proves he will sit on that seat of judgment. John 17.5 speaks of the glory of Christ that he had before. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Consider this verse. That the eternal Son enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father in eternity. And as he became a man and was facing the cross, he said, Father, what was on his mind? Not just the cross, but the joy to come, right? That's what enabled him to endure the cross. And part of the joy to come was that he would again experience the glory that he deserves, that he had before the world existed, the glory of the Father, enjoying fellowship with him, this time in a human body as our mediator and our representative. The resurrection is what makes that happen. What made that happen? How could could the man Christ Jesus enjoy the glory of God in His presence other than the resurrection? And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him The first part of that was Christ's resurrection. The resurrection moved Christ into that place of glory. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection brought Jesus there. God raised Him exalted Him, gave Him this name so that every knee would bow before Him. And again, the glory, the glory that Jesus deserves that the resurrection brought Him into concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and what? The subsequent glories. After death, what? What's the first taste of His glory? Resurrection. Then ascension. And seated in the presence of God in glory. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead, and what? Gave Him glory. Raised and glorified by the Father so that your faith and hope are in God. The resurrection anticipates the perfect judgment of Christ that all may honor Him and the glory of Christ that He deserves. How do we respond to these messages, to this message of the resurrection? Honor the Son above all. Love the Son above all. Turn from sin. Bow to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Trust in His saving work. 
Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, right? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Before we pray, let me just ask you a few questions here. Are you convinced of the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Are you willing to honor Him above all? Have you turned from your own sin to receive His salvation? Have you set aside your own works, your own doing to save yourself and make yourself good and righteous in some way and receive the testimony of God the Father that the life and death and resurrection of Christ are sufficient to save you? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Have you with your heart believed in what Christ has done? That God has raised him? Then cry out to God today and be saved. If yet you have not been, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave today. Don't leave having heard the glory of the resurrection and seeing the salvation that Christ offered. Don't don't leave this and let the message grow dim in your heart. Receive it while you see it. There is coming a day where Christ will be seated as judge and Lord and he will raise all from the dead. Will you be in him on that day? When you stand before God, will you be clothed in the righteousness of Christ or will you be standing there before him in your sin and your own feeble attempts to be good enough? Only Christ. Only Christ's righteousness is enough. Only his death is sufficient. Only his resurrection will justify you. Trust in him. He will not fail you. All of God's promises will be fulfilled to you who trust in Christ. And brothers and sisters, if, if you are in Christ today, seated at his right hand in Christ, in heavenly places, set your mind there. Rejoice in the things that are there for you. Look to what is unseen. Don't let the things of this world captivate your affections in your heart and draw you away from love for Christ and serving Him and and giving yourself to Him. Seek Him before all and find His life in you to bring God glory and to make you fruitful. Well, would you stand with me and let's pray and give thanks this morning together. Father, we, we need to look to Christ so much more than we do. Fill in the gaps, Father, of understanding. Like Paul prayed, let the understanding of our minds be enlightened to know, to know the power that is at work in us because Christ is risen and He lives in us. And we can bear fruit for God because He's in us. Help us not to look to ourselves and our own strength and efforts to press on from day to day to do your will, but to look to the Christ who is risen and seated and living in us. May we live by faith in that way. And Father, if there is one here today who has not yet confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, they're still trusting in themselves. They're still loving their sin. Please, please grip their heart with the glory of Christ. 
May they see themselves standing one day before his judgment seat. And like Paul, be willing to grieve the loss of their own good works, their own family traditions, their own self-righteousness, and even their sin to grieve the loss of it all, to know that it counts for nothing when standing before God, but that they can have the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ to clothe them and to make them acceptable with God. Oh, Father, make it all clear in their minds. Make it clear to them. Help them to see the difference between sin and self-righteousness and Christ and His life and death and resurrection and His promise to save all who trust. And may they, by Your grace, make a clean break from self and sin to rest in Christ alone. Oh, Father, thank You. Thank You for putting together this whole eternal plan of salvation and putting forward Christ, your Son, as the perfect sacrifice and offering for sin, and then raising him to make all of your saving promises sure. We rejoice in you. We hope in you. We trust. We give you thanks. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.